Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. Our Old Testament reading this evening is from Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28, the first 10 verses, that's found on page 549. In your pew Bibles. Proverbs chapter 28. Hear the word of the Lord. The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. A poor man who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who's crooked in his ways. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of glutton shames his father. Whoever multiplies his wealth by an interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. May God bless that reading of his word to our hearts and lives. Our New Testament reading is from Titus chapter 3, the first 15 verses, found on page 998, Titus 3. Verses 1 to 15, 1 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, These things 
are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. For a man or a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask now for your word read to be opened by your Holy Spirit, even as it is preached. Uh, We pray for this illumining work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We ask for his blessing in our midst. We are so bold to ask for God to work within us. For indeed, this is the promise of your beloved son. You love him. And so we pray that you might bless those who are in him. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, down through the centuries, Titus chapter 3 has been fertile ground for biblical and theological debate. At least three major disputes have consumed exegetes of the New Testament as they have studied this text down through the years. First, the faithful sayings controversy. That controversy asks the question, which set of verses are the faithful saying in the chapter set before us? The faithful saying might be verses 3 to 7. This was the thinking of Dabellius and Corzelman. The faithful sayings may be verses 4 to 7, as marked out by Alfred and Hendrickson and Jeremias and many others. Or the faithful sayings might be verses 5 to 7, according to Guthrie and Kelly. And then there's the washing controversy of verse 5. Which meaning is it? Does washing mean baptism of Christ, as A.T. Hampson claims? Or does washing mean the right of baptism that we enjoy in the Christian church? That's where the majority of scholars and Protestants and Catholics alike tend to pitch their tent. Or maybe washing is a metaphor for spiritual cleansing as emphasized by Knight and Fee and Dunn. And then there's the regeneration controversy of verse 5. Which means is it? Is it spiritual regeneration as the Protestants claim? Or baptismal regeneration as the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and some sects claim? My brothers and sisters, you'll be relieved to hear this evening that we're not going to talk about any of these. (laughs) Oh, these are important questions and they should feel scholarly Journals and there are implications of these questions which are serious for the Christian life. But this evening, 
My design and purpose is to have a much larger brush, a five-inch brush, the kind you, you paint the side of the house with, not, not one of those tiny brushes to paint the little lines on the leaves in the trees. This evening we're going to look at the broad outline of Titus 3, tracing Paul's major arguments here so that we might learn about these three key ideas, these three key topics that he presents. And so this evening... We're going to talk, following the apostle, we're going to talk about sin, we're going to talk about salvation, and we're going to talk about sanctification in our Christian lives. Sin, salvation, and sanctification. It's, it's a meat and potatoes night. Well, first of all, Paul speaks to us in this chapter, Titus 3, about sin. And he here tells us in compass what he puts so memorably back In his epistle to the Romans, he says here, in effect, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, each and every one of us. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, etc. For we ourselves, the apostle Paul says. That means that apostles, as well as pastors and church members, have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It also lets us know that apostles are people too, so that we give thanks to God for the work that he has done through Paul and Peter and the balance of the twelve, but we don't put them on too high a pedestal, and we don't revere them as persons too, too much. They are like ourselves. They have broken God's holy and Righteous word. They have not lived up to the full stature of the measure of the image of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are all sons or daughters of our first father Adam and our first mother Eve. No matter how well dressed or groomed. No matter how short or long our hair. No matter how careful we may be or not be with the Queen's English. We are all sinners here tonight. The universality of sin makes Titus 3 a common topic, not just in Crete, but also in East Tennessee. But what's most interesting in this uh, section, however, in this verse, is what is missing. Paul begins listing off a series of sins. And I want to point out the fact that, first of all, he, he does not mention global and societal sins there is a silence on that matter now it can be a strange thing to preach from silence of the text rather than something explicitly given and we have to handle it very carefully because that's not to say that global and societal sins aren't important but Paul didn't feel they were important to mention here when he only had apparently one sheet of papyrus and a pen with just so much ink left in it Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Here he is painting with a very fine brush. He is speaking personally and privately to individuals, individual Christians. And remember the backdrop. Remember what he's talking about. It's not the Republican or Democratic Party that he's referring to here. It's the Roman Empire. I'll confess to you, last night I couldn't sleep and I I turned on that... uh, hotel tube just for a few minutes trying to get really thoroughly bored so that I could drift off it. Unfortunately, there was some kind of some kind of Roman 
in the arena kind of movie just at the end. I, I watched somebody, I think actually they both died in the arena and they carried them out on their shoulders. Not the kind of thing you can really go to sleep to. But Paul here is writing about that. He's writing about the kind of people that sat watching eagerly in the arena, wanting to see people die, watching the drama of of the senate and the court of the Caesar uh, work out what was just to be done and right and good in the public interest there in the place on the soil of life and death for so many. And Paul doesn't say a word other than be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's a silence on the sins of Caesar here when compared to the detail of personal sins that are listed off in verses 3 and 4. The silence is deafening. And there is an interesting application of that that I've recently had in my own life. There was a dear parishioner who complained to an elder that Dr. Rankin doesn't preach the Bible. He doesn't preach the Bible, she said. The old elder looked at her mystified and said, Well, madam, you know, he reads from the Old Testament and the New Testament in both the morning and evening service. And he expounds an Old Testament and New Testament passage in either the morning or the evening. And he does a verse-by-verse exposition nearly. I, I mean, it's about as biblical as you can get. And she said, no, that's not what I mean. The purpose of preaching is to teach Christians how to take over the U.S. government. And he doesn't do that, she said. And the wry old elder smiled and said, well, madam, you are in one thing right. He doesn't do that. (laughs) And Paul doesn't do that here either. As a matter of fact, that order is never on his menu But the Apostle Paul's passing over those sins here was with a purpose. It was with a purpose for the life of the saints in Crete. You see, he wanted to emphasize personal and pastoral sins here to them. That was what they were in such desperate need of. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. It's as if the apostle gets down off his pulpit and he goes and he sits in the dirt with the congregation, with the people of God, and he says, let me tell you what we all have been like. And he gives this catalog Of heartbreaking sin. You see in this list here is the stuff of our daily life and walk. Here are the sins which so easily entangle us. Do they not? Uh, These sins resonate with all of us. We, We have trouble hearing the words. Hated by others and hating one another. But there are at times. There are times and occasions are they not. When the truth breaks in upon our self-protected souls and we see ourselves in the mirror for what we really are. We have all committed these sins 
And we are all humbled by the apostle in his listing of them. Paul's point here, you see, is to say to young Timothy that he has to bear with this kind of foolishness in the church. That he has to bear with all the foolishness and silliness which you find even in the realm of the visible church because you know what? We have all been so silly and foolish ourselves before. Rather than being quick to judge and condemn, he calls us to remember. Now, those of you that are younger than 20, you're at a little disadvantage here. Those of us that are older, you see, we have more to remember. And so we should be quick and the first to embrace what the... Apostle Paul is here stressing to us. But even if you're younger, you can remember that you're not perfect. And so you should be kind and patient towards even your older brother or sister when they don't do right. We must remember our own foibles and shortcomings. We must remember the hatred in our heart. We must remember our need to be humble. Our need to bear the fruit of patience and diligence in ministering one to another. We must be careful never to let the words slip from our heart or even be whispered from our lips. I deserve better than this among believers. Because the frank fact of the matter is we don't. Paul then moves to his second great theme. Having pressed our hearts on sin, he now encourages our hearts with salvation. And here the faithful saying is true. Salvation is of God, not man. Salvation is of God, not man. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Here Paul is plucking that old familiar theme. It's in the Psalms, but it's in all the other books of the Old and New Testament as well. Salvation comes from where? From God's covenant, mercy, and loving kindness. God is the fount of our every blessing. God is the one who initiates our salvation. His use of the term loving kindness in verse 4 is a... Very laser-sharp covenantal term. It's in the making of the great covenant of grace that God, who has total freedom of will, who can do anything He wishes that's according to His own character, He binds Himself to be merciful and loving to His people in a special way. Yes, it's true. God loves all. God loves all men in the sense that He's made them all. They're his children. He makes the just and the unjust both to have the rain fall down upon them. He spreads his common grace mercies abroad. But in the matter of salvation, his special love, his special love is upon his people and them alone. His covenant love is ours, you see, even before we were born. And his purpose is in the covenant of grace did not turn upon what we might or would do, but only upon himself, his will, his divine mind, which is absolutely amazing and beyond our understanding and comprehension. 
Salvation comes from the covenant-making God. And that means also that salvation does not come by the works of men. Verse 5 continues, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not of man, but rather of God. This is the main point in his faithful saying, not man, but God is Paul's big point. And so we remember, as it has been so memorably put in verse, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. And how does the salvation of God through Christ come to us? Well, it comes by just the way the Apostle Paul says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes not by our personal resolve, but rather through regeneration and renewal. Verses 5 and 6 make this point. He saved us not because of works done By us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The phrase washing of regeneration refers not to baptism, but to that which baptism signifies, the real substance of the matter. And it's God the Holy Spirit here who does this. He he unites us to Christ. And so regenerates us and so renews us based upon the great work that Christ alone has done for us. Paul's double-barreled prepositional phrase here is the same gauge on each side. He is speaking, he is making his point in a double-headed way. God saves by the Holy Spirit, applying the work of Christ, involving both regeneration on the one hand and renewal in our lives on the other. Salvation is of God. And this salvation makes us heirs of eternal life. Verse 7 says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here Paul lifts our eyes off of the past And sets them firmly towards the future. Now that's important when you've given a long list of silly sins as he's given in verse 3. You know the tender hearted believer could spend all of her time or all of his time dwelling on verse 3. And and these things of the past and and these violations of the law and the offense that they are to God. and, And the chaos that ripples through our lives because of our disobedience, we we could get caught up in that and never get out of the pit. And so Paul lifts us up. He lifts us up to the fact that we've been made heirs of eternal life. He calls us to look and see all the blessings that God has in store for us. Oh, we are so tempted To be kept down, focusing upon ourselves rather than the Almighty. 
It is not just an American cultural penchant for navel-gazing and self-adoration that is the problem. But it's also the the inside-out inverted form where we dwell upon ourselves and our own insufficiency to the point where we're utterly paralyzed and we are therefore relieved of being busy doing good as Paul so clearly commands. Salvation comes with a blessing of eternal life, a future glory, and therefore a present thankfulness to God and labor to his glory out of love and appreciation. In addition to sin and salvation, Paul then finally moves to the topic of sanctification. On sanctification, his Memorable phrase is in effect, Christian living requires what? Titus, it requires pastoral care. Christian living requires pastoral care. Oh, if we go back to verse 1, Paul is speaking to young Titus and he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, and etc., Remind them of these things, he says. Here the apostle is telling the young pastor that he must remind the church in Crete of this reality, of their need to be submissive and obedient, their need not to be involved in quarrels, their need to be generous, their need to be gentle and courteous. The Cretans needed to be reminded of those things. In every home with children, there is this uh, ritual. At least I presume it's not just in our home that it happens. Oh, they're young babies. But as soon as they begin toddling around and they begin wearing not just a shirt, but also a coat when it's cold outside, what does mom say? Don't forget your jacket. Don't forget your coat. Do you have your coat? Have you got it with you? Where is your coat? Where did you leave it? We must go find it. You must have your coat. And you know, the reason mom does that for you is that you need her to do that for you. That if mom was not so insistent and persistent and downright almost eternal in the way that she brought this up, you would get sick and die. And so you need her to remind you to love you in that practical sort of way. Just like when she tells you to eat your broccoli, to swallow your spinach, and to take a bath and wash your hair. All those things that your mother tells you as a kid, those are important and meant for your good. In the same way, Titus here is under apostolic instruction reminding the congregation of God in that place of things that they really need to know and that they probably would rather not have to hear. But Christian living requires pastoral care. It's always been that way. That is so needed by us that it is worth the trouble to get it. You see, kids grow up and they become these interesting creatures called teenagers. And they don't want to hear about jackets anymore, but they still need to know. And as you grow up through your teenage years, you learn that you must bear with patiently your mother who has so repeatedly spared your life from pneumonia that you 
that she deserves to still say those words and for you not to bite back. There is a uh, message there for congregations in their relationship on going to their pastors as well. Titus, remind the Cretans of what they need to know. But then secondly, on their sanctification, Titus was told not just to remind them, but to absolutely insist on these things. Uh, The saying is trustworthy, verse 8, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist on these things. Uh, Your mother insists. She dogs you out of the kitchen and through the living room and out to the car. Uh, She is careful and persistent. And so Titus was to be as well, absolutely insisting that these basic core things of the gospel not be lost, of sin and of salvation and of growth in the Lord with an eye to good works. You know, sometimes Reformed believers take it on the chin. Uh, I can remember being at a conference, a missionary conference one time and hearing a fairly uh, strident Arminian critique of us in being told that uh, the Reformed like to sit around and shine their armor rather than getting out and using it to the glory of God. And, you know, that can be a foible. That can be a weakness on our part so very often. We, yes, need to shine our armor. We need to be careful with our handling of the word of God. We need to make sure that we get line upon line and truth upon truth and that we follow the whole counsel of God as best we can But we also need to hear the words of insistence that we do these things so that we might, what? Devote ourselves to good works. What good works are you doing? What good works do you have to give back to your Savior in glory and honor to his name? Titus was to insist upon these things with the congregation in Crete for their good. And for the glory of God. And they were to be told to avoid certain things. Verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about law, the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, again, we must not forget the context. It is not that the Apostle Paul hates the law or he's not interested in. Knowing how to exegete the Old Testament or the Mosaic Code, he certainly is interested in those things. He does it quite often himself. But here he is warning Titus that he must tell his congregation not to do certain things. And the transition from Judaism in its Old Testament form to Christianity in its New Testament form, uh, there were some changes. Because you see, not all of the Old Testament law had been given for the same kind of usefulness in the life of New Testament believers as in the life of old. There was a difference. Oh, God's moral law always is binding. Because you see, we're made in the image of God. Even before it was given at Mount Sinai, it bound us inwardly. Because we were made in the image of the triune God. But God also, to that moral law, added... Ceremonial law, 
which pointed to Jesus, to the coming of the Savior, to his sacrifice on Calvary, to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in joy upon the people of God and all the blessings and effects thereof. Oh, the ceremonial law with all of its temple and its tabernacle, with all of the accoutrements of the priest and the the Levite orders and all of this complex of Old Testament religion and worship. It was there. Given by God, intended all along to find its fulfillment and its punctiliar end in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this morning I I wore a robe because uh, of a lack of beauty and form and order. Just to cover up. Not because if you're not wearing a robe, it's not the word of God that's being preached. Or the right worship of God being observed. I I'm not a priest. Or to put it more positively, I'm I'm a priest just as much, no more, no less than yourselves and the priesthood of all believers. Our priest is who? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our one great high priest. We have no other priest among men. But during the time of that transition in which the Apostle Paul is writing, you can understand how there may have been many people raised in the Temple complex and in the shadows of it and all the worship form and order. They, they just had a thing about wanting to bring an animal to be sacrificed and all of that went. Because all of it found its fulfillment in Jesus and was not to continue in the shadowy form because the substance had come. Oh, there was so much over which the people of God in that day were could be tempted to fight and struggle over biting one another. And Titus is told by the Apostle Paul to tell the Cretans to avoid certain things, to avoid those foolish controversies, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Oh, we must be careful upon that which we dwell. And Paul tells Titus to warn the Cretans in verses 10 and 11. Here we read, For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is not a theoretical possibility of which the Apostle Paul is speaking. It is an absolute reality in the visible church. It is oftentimes a temptation for evangelical congregations, especially those sensitive to numbers and money, budgets and noses, to think that Really, with the right measure of persuasion and kindness, you can solve every problem in the world. But here Paul tells Titus, no, it's not that way at all. That there are some who destroy churches. There are some who stir up division. There are some who are warped and sinful and self-condemned. And the only remedy in that case for the good of all is to step back from them, warm them once and twice, And then have no more to do with them. It is that sobering topic of 
discipline that Paul is here referring to. And he's warning Titus that as much as he might like to avoid it, it is needed and true for the sanctification of the people of God. Oh, a warning in due season, what a blessing it is is to our souls. You know, if I could just get the Georgia State troopers to understand how important this principle is, so that if I go outside of the line maybe once or twice, they could just issue one of those warnings rather than tickets. God is merciful in dealing with his sheep. He is gentle and gives a first and second warning. And then he gives a remedy which is designed not to kill, but is rather designed to win back. Oh, the Lord tells his apostle to tell the young pastor to warn the Cretans when their souls are in danger and silly things. And then he tells them, To learn. Verse 14 says. And let our people learn. To devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need. And not be unfruitful. Here Titus was to help the Cretans. Learn. To grow in knowledge and understanding. But not just. In the abstract or heady sort. Also in its application. To devote themselves, what? To good works. To be busy doing good things. They were to learn to be Christ-like in their service. To be Christ-devoted in their service. To be Christ-centered in their service. They were to be more concerned about him and his kingdom than themselves. The Cretans needed to learn this. And Titus needed to teach them. He needed to help them to learn that truth. And in all of these pieces of advice on sanctification, the apostolic truth given here to young Titus is still relevant to us all. Sin is something we all have in common. Sin is something for which we need salvation and sanctification. And salvation in your life will only come of God. It's a free gift by his grace received only by faith in Christ. So trust in him. And sanctification, that progressive growth and conformity to his image, involves Christian living. Where? In the home? At school? In the workplace? In the marketplace? It requires personal effort on the one hand and pastoral care on the other. Oh, sanctification is a busy something for our busy Christian lives. Lived all to his glory all our days. Remembering what the apostle has here told us. Let us go take on the day to his glory. Let us pray. Thanks again for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. These sermons are provided for the edification of church members who wish to hear the sermons again and for those who are providentially hindered from attending our services. We believe the Bible teaches there is no substitute for faithful attendance to worship and membership in a Bible-believing, 
evangelical church. If you are in the East Tennessee area, we encourage you to visit our church in Oak Ridge. If you reside elsewhere, we encourage you to seek out a good church in your area. For help in doing so, or if you have any other questions or comments, please contact us at cpcsermons at gmail.com. Again, you may learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. Blessings to you.